0: Well, here is a text uh, only a politician could love. We're to chapter 13 now in this last of five Roman series, and we're going to take today and the next two Sundays in this chapter, chapter 13. Last week, as we were finishing chapter 12, I, I told you we would double back around, namely to verses 14 and 15 in chapter 12 as a way of teeing up chapter 13, but I want to table that to next week, actually. Uh, Next Sunday, we'll look at verses 8 through 10 here in chapter 13, and we'll bring those two lines from chapter 12 back into the consideration in verses 8 through 10 next Sunday. But today, as Mark read, verses 1 through 7, we're talking about the church and the state. Next Sunday, we'll talk about the church in the state, That's verses 8 through 10, but today we're taking what's in verses 1 through 7 from two angles. Let me give you the two headings of approach right off the bat here. First, we'll talk about why the church welcomes the state as God's servant, and then second, we'll talk about why the church is wary of the state as God's servant. One of the things that we're confronted with, uh, certainly in Romans and certainly in this passage in Romans, is that. When we set to obey God in response to what all he's done, that's where we are in Romans. Now we're in the chapters that tell us how to respond to all this great grace and mercy we've been shown. Obedience frequently takes you into attention. Obedience is not easy. I don't know of of anyone who who finds obedience easy. Now there are certain things that are are easier to obey than others. This is a, ta- a passage that's full of tensions. And Paul doesn't resolve the tensions for us. He gives us the tension. And we're going to talk through this tension. And so the two headings that I want to use is why we welcome this, the, the, the state being, and I'm, by state I'm, I'm taking the, the, the language of governing authorities and just talking about it as church and state, why we welcome the state as God's servant, but also because we're in a tension here why we're wary of the state being God's servant. Notice, first of all, just looking at the text, these first seven verses of chapter 13 here, there's a lot of repeated emphasis. And when you find repeated emphasis in Scripture, typically the author wants you to really note this or the author is uh, overcoming a resistance that he knows that we have to this. And so notice that... Uh, All this emphasis here on the state slash governing authorities being, verses 1 and 2, you've got the language of instituted by God, appointed by God. Twice in verse 4, we've got the state as God's servant. Down in verse 6, governing authorities are ministers of God. And particularly in uh, Europe where there was a lot of uh, Christian formation of, of civilization, a lot of ministers in government. You've got uh, the prime minister of England, for instance. That comes out of the language in Romans 13. That's indicating uh, uh, the Judeo-Christian formation of, of, of governing authorities uh, from way back up until the present time. But you've got a lot of repeated emphasis as you're just looking at the text. The repeated emphasis on what? That government, the state, derives its authority From God, why is there so much stress on this? We could talk about that from a number of angles. Let me give you a reason that's apt to be overlooked. Why there's so much emphasis, repeated emphasis the state, is instituted, appointed. These are God's servants. This is um, uh, uh, ministers of God. A reason why this heavy emphasis here... uh, is if you'll think back to our instruction in chapter 12. In fact, uh, if you look back into chapter 12 at verses 3 and 16. Remember chapter 12 verse 3 tells us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. And that instruction gets repeated down in verse 16 of chapter 12 where we're told never to be wise in our own sight. Among the reasons why this instruction in, in chapter 13 is here is that we chafe against being ruled in any way. Uh, We chafe in that because of our sinfulness, but also in our redemption, we could try to locate in Jesus' authority over all and the fact that Jesus' kingdom is coming and that we are citizens of heaven. We could try to locate in that, not just in our sin do we chafe at this, but we could in our redemption try to say, well, Fidelity to Jesus means that I throw off the rulership of the kingdoms of this world, and I'm subject to no authority but Jesus. Uh, somebody was uh, telling me this week uh, about a, a friend of theirs that, that, that uh, no longer is part of a church. He, they, they just have moved from church to church to church, and when this friend challenged his friend, the guy said, well, Jesus is my pastor. Nice try. Okay? Hey? That sounds really devoted, but here's the problem. In that, we're actually thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. In that particular case, this guy's thinking, well, there's, there's no church that can have me. Either I'm too pure, churches are in too much error, etc. and so on. We all run into that every now and then. It's a, very much a bless your heart kind of a scenario when you do. Um, but we're wise in our own eyes. We would be being wise in our own eyes to throw off government to be ungovernable. Our worship of Jesus as Lord of all does not permit us to make ourselves ungovernable. Again, I recognize their tensions in this text and we're coming to them, but right or wrong, for us or against us, government is a needed provision of God in a fallen world and for a fallen world. And because the world is fallen in sin, We expect to find sin in governing authorities as well as in the governed, but all the repeated emphasis here, we're just taking the press box view of the field right now and we're about to get down on it, but all the repeated emphasis here on government originating from God is meant to underscore for us, redeemed people, that God's purposes for the church include the church being governed by the state, even though the state can be corrupt, yes, Even though the state can be oppressive, it certainly can be. But the church bears witness to the state of our submission to Jesus. That's why we're left here in the kingdoms of this world. We bear witness of our submission to Jesus by uh, not causing the state problems, but by submitting ourselves to the state's oversight. Assuming, of course, that the state is not asking us To not submit to Jesus. We'll talk about that tension momentarily. But the church neither merges with the state. Nor does the church cast off the state to become our own state. Don't tell Vatican City. (laughs) The church lives submitted to the state. And why this is good for us is our first consideration of two today. First, why we welcome the state being God's servant. And then we're going to get to why we're wary of the state being in this high role. First, why we welcome the state being God's servant. The short answer is because everyone doing what's right in our own eyes, well, we know how that works out. We have a testimony to it for all eternity. It's the Old Testament book of Judges. Old Testament book of Judges is a hard book. It shows you what a people are like, not just who, who, who are doing what's right in their own eyes, but without a Messiah without a savior it's rough and so the short answer to why we welcome the state being the servant of God is this is a fallen world and there need to be laws there needs to be respect for law there needs to be law enforcement these are necessities but in verse 4 notice chapter 13 verse 4 we're told the value and benefit of being governed is that the role of government is to do us good. See that in the first part of verse four? For he is God's servant for your good. And notice this is actually reciprocal. Look back up at verse three, latter part of verse three. Do what is good, this is the last part of verse three. Do what is good and you will receive his approval. Now first part of verse four, for he is God's servant for your good. The logic is simple to follow here. And Paul is talking about what is usually, what is supposed to be true. That is, there are exceptions, but as a rule, if we're law-abiding, we'll get the state's protection, or the word that's used there in verse 3 is his approval. The good here in context, verse 4, he is God's servant for your good. What's the good? The good of being governed is the good of being protected. That's the good. The good that the state does is it protects its law-abiding citizens. That's what it's supposed to do. Governing authorities set laws. They maintain laws. Our God is a law-giving God, and thereby the state is called his servant in this interest, his minister, because the state has a law-giving, law-enforcing function. Law enforcement is why the state is called an avenger. As verse 4 continues... Verse 4, he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, for law-abiding people, this is good. Can the state abuse this power? Yes, it can. But the state being established for our good... Includes accountability for the wrongdoer, this word at the end of verse 4. And this is something we welcome. Now we saw God's wrath last week in the text in chapter 12, verse 19. If you want to look back to that just for a moment, I'll read chapter 12, verse 19 again. Where the church is told to never avenge ourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. Chapter 12, verse 19, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How does that, that vengeance belongs to God, chapter 12, verse 19, how does that square with now chapter 13, verse 4, saying, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Well, ultimate justice, ultimate judgment, belongs to God, who is yet to send Jesus back. Jesus, who will return, (coughs) bringing with him the greatest criminal justice system the world has ever known, he never miscarries justice. He epitomizes it. In fact, he incarnates the justice of God. The state can miscarry justice. We know this, being that it is the fallen kingdoms of this world. That's what the state is. But that notwithstanding, God allows the state a privilege only he really has in the ultimate sense. The state is carrying it out under his authority, whether the state recognizes that or not. God allows the state to avenge by way of penalties on the wrongdoer, that word in verse 4, up to and including death. Now I realize capital punishment stokes a lot of passions both for and against but the plainest most face value reading of verse 4 this line in reference to not bearing the sword in vain does allow the state to penalize the wrongdoer with death. The plainest reading of the text the state has that, that power. However this doesn't mean Christians should ever cheerlead for the state to use this power. It's a terrible power to have and to use. I've seen conservative Christians through the years really thump on chapter 13 when they debate this social issue because the Bible permits the state to execute. Christians must then be pro-capital punishment, but that does not exactly follow. This passage is saying the state has the power to execute as an avenger on the law abiding, of the law abiding, this passage is not saying we have to want that. I've not seen those same Christians thump on chapter 13 here when it comes to taxes. I mean, we see in verses 6 and 7, the state is also given by God the power to tax, but I don't hear Christians who cheerlead for capital punishment cheerleading for the state to do more taxing of us, even though it's in the same passage here. Be consistent with whatever position you take. We're talking about why we welcome the state as God's servant. We've been considering this from the state's protective role. The state protects the law-abiding citizen. And what Paul is saying is that Christians are to be law-abiding and to respect the way that God has set up, even in a fallen world, uh, this kind of of governance. But how, how does this bear on the gospel? This is not a civics class. This is a sermon. How does this bear on the gospel? I don't know if you've thought about this, but consider if the state didn't bear the sword, this language that we have here in verse 4, if the state didn't bear the sword, we wouldn't have had a cross. Now, hear me out. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't jump to conclusions because this is a hot button issue the cross was awful. In fact, the word awful doesn't even do it justice. It was cruel and unusual instrument of tortured execution. Jesus wasn't a wrongdoer, using this wording in verse 4 here, but he was treated as if he was, and that's the gospel. He who knew no sin was treated as if he did, as if he was the epitome of everything sinful. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might know what? The righteousness of God. Philippians 2, we've uh, studied that before here, that uh, he became obedient to the point of death. And Paul says there, even death on a cross, the worst execution instrument ever conceived of. Don't hear me saying uh, uh, as a justification for deadly force or for for capital punishment because the cross came out of it then it's all okay. I'm not saying that. I do think a more consistent pro-life ethic does not cheerlead ever for death. It doesn't rejoice in death. It does rejoice in justice. It's an option the state has. I will not say it's not and I've interacted with people in the community on this. I've been asked uh, by community leaders to show up at, at different venues where we're protesting this or, or talking about that. And I've, I've, had to, I've had to wear this conviction. I've had to walk this conviction. This is not just me sitting in front of a TV uh, doing armchair uh, work here. I've, I've walked this out. I've disappointed some people by where I would stand and not stand. But it's also true it's true that God gave the state the power even to execute. That I can't get around that. That's in the text. But it's also true that when God gave this power to the state, he knew it would be wielded unjustly against his own son. And yet, what does Isaiah 53 tell us? Remember we looked at Isaiah 53 on Easter Sunday morning? It was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to cause him to suffer and also to raise him, and we're thankful for both. The Roman government wasn't intending to do us any good in crucifying Jesus. And yet they, they did us good in that, not knowing what they were doing in spite of themselves, but God chose to work even our redemption through this terrible power he gave the state. The cross is the ultimate expression of What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And what were we told at the very end of chapter 12, verse 21, very end of chapter 12, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How did Jesus overcome the evil thrust upon him? By the ultimate good, the superlative good of his self-sacrifice for our benefit, our redemption. So our first consideration is why we welcome. And it's because the state has a protective role. It's because the state avenges on the wrongdoer. We desire that. We need that. We need law. But the second consideration now, why we're wary of the state as God's servant, because government is a most flawed servant. We know that and I'm not talking about bureaucracy and red tape and 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 political divide so that's all part of it. What's made this teaching in chapter 13 difficult through the centuries is Paul doesn't handle any variables like what about unjust laws? What about laws that just aren't right and the people see it and and the government may not or the government may have have put this unjust law into motion to oppress the people? What if governing authorities are corrupt in such ways that they're just not respectable? What if the state tries to make us disobey God? What if, what if, what if? Most of the ink spilled on this passage when you read the commentaries is wrestling with variables that come up in real life experience. The question is how far is too far when it comes to verse 1? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The first duty of governing authorities is to protect the citizens. This we welcome, but power is a thing so easily corrupted and so we're also wary. What if the state is the wrongdoer? Paul doesn't address this. At its best, the state provides civil order, it holds wrongdoers accountable, it even promotes incentives that contribute to human flourishing when we adopted. Uh, we, we're, we got a generous uh, tax credit for that. So it wasn't why we did it, but it was appreciated. Government can work for us. Government can also work against us. Although Paul doesn't qualify it here, the answer to how far is too far. There is a, there is a, a, a too far. And it's, and it's the same with any submission line that's drawn in Scripture. The how far is too far is when the church's submission to the state, uh, it ends when the state imposes laws that require us to disobey God. Now, we don't have experience with that. But in a lot of parts of the world, they do. That's an abuse of its power. If the state rises up and it becomes God itself and tries to lord it over its people, then the church is put into uh, a conundrum the abuse of the power of the state the church need not tolerate but if we defy the state if the state says do this and we say we can't do that it's disobedient to god and the state says do it anyway or else we even practice submission to the state's punishment now this is this is hard teaching but let me give you an example the classic biblical example of believers facing Uh, submission to the state's punishment for not doing what the state said because doing it would have been disobedient to God. The classic example, there's actually two examples of this in the the Old Testament book of Daniel. You're familiar with Daniel. Daniel tells the story of certain Hebrew captives exiled to Babylon. Babylon was the world power of the day and was completely pagan. And these uh, Hebrew um, exiles, these young men, Uh, The best among them, the best and brightest, they were uh, taken in by the Babylonian government to be groomed for service to the king. And those Hebrew exiles submitted to that. They lived as Babylonians. They even took Babylonian names. And they even submitted to Babylonian punishment when they disobeyed laws that tried to enforce pluralism. A couple of accounts of this in Daniel, one involving the punishment of being burned alive in a furnace and the other of being eaten alive by lions. You've seen this. In the first instance the Babylonian king at that point made this huge idol and uh, imposed a law and the law was enforced pluralism. He said everybody's free to worship their own god except you've also got to worship this god. Well, that was a problem for the Hebrew exiles. Basically, the idol was Nebuchadnezzar's own glorified image of himself. And um, three Hebrew exiles, otherwise living as Babylonians, Babylonian names, all of it, they wouldn't do it. And the reason they wouldn't worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol, they rightly refused because they knew God said, you shall have no other gods before me. It's not God plus one. It's God alone who's worthy of worship, the only true and wise God. And they, they stood on that faithfully and they submitted to the punishment. The punishment was they would get thrown into this furnace. They'd get burned alive, but God rescued them in that particular case. Daniel himself later rescued from a lion's den for breaking another law imposed by a Babylonian king that uh, limited his uh, worship of God. God protected all of his guys in Babylon and then also judged the kings who misused their authority in imposing completely self-serving laws. But in keeping with Romans 13 here, putting that into this, those Hebrew exiles of old were told in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, and then he works that out, and the way Christians have classically understood this is that even uh, we, we, we don't submit if the government asks us to do something we can't do, but we do submit to the punishment on the other side of our refusal. And you say, well, I don't, I don't like that. That's hard to hear. I don't either. It's hard for Americans in particular to square with this. We don't have any experience with it, really. But what's the larger point? The point, the larger point, is the church has a witness to bear to the state. And the way the church does that, the way the church demonstrates that we have a higher allegiance to Jesus, if you go back to chapter 12, the way we demonstrate that we are on the altar as living sacrifices is that we live submitted lives to God as he's revealed himself to us in and through Jesus. And should the state threaten the church with punishment for not doing what it wants because it's in conflict with what God wants, which for us is almost a complete hypothetical, but nevertheless, it's not for our brothers and sisters around the world. The church continues entrusting herself to the Lord and if the state says do this and we say we can't do it because it's disobedience to God and the state says do it or else we have to take the or else. Paul is operating here from what is usually true. The state at least tolerates the church in most places but often commends and even incentivizes law-abiding citizens of which the church is supposed to be in full. And it punishes its outlaws even with death. The church is to live in the state peaceably. As far as it depends on us, thinking about those words last week from chapter 12, we're not to give the state problems unless or until the state presents us with really our only problem, our only one problem with the state is if the state asks us to do something that God outlaws. Now I say again, this is not a civics class. This is a sermon. This is not the venue to glorify the American form of representative democracy. If you want that, you can read the Federalist Papers later today. This is the venue to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we do in this place. He's Lord of all. And when he returns, the book of Revelation says, all the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. That's the next great event on God's calendar. But given our subject matter in this text, I as you, we we live in in dual citizenry. We're citizens of this place and we're citizens of a place yet to be revealed in a tactile way. We know it's there, but we haven't yet seen it, tasted it, breathed it in. So we have a dual citizenship. And um, I as you pledge allegiance to the republic whenever the flag unfurls. I'd rather be here than anywhere else. I've, I've been to many other countries in the world. I'm very thankful to have an eagle on my passport, and not just for the conveniences, but, but for the values that inform who we are as a people. But I'm also wary, and I'm wary because I've learned over time that power is a thing so easily corrupted, It's a thing so easily corrupting, And I've grown up inside an evangelicalism that is way too naive about this often. An evangelicalism that wants to drape the flag, as it were, around Jesus' shoulders when he emerges victorious from the tomb. I actually see in in stores uh, the flag draped around the cross. And I just want to go, who's going to give me a whip to drive this out of here? Come on. This is idolatry. Plain and simple. The same God who said, I will have no other gods before me, never intended that we would drape a cross with our our flag. Come on. Uh, Purge yourself of that stuff if you have it. I grew up in an evangelicalism that too often equates and confuses the identities of the nation and the church. It's a comforting idolatry, and you love it. And I've tried to confront you about it at times, and you don't hear me. So I'm just speaking to you very plainly right now, very plainly. I'm offending you, okay? That happens to happen at least once a Sunday uh, or at least one Sunday out of the year, okay? I'm not angry or upset about it, but how long does this go on? How long does the evangelical church insist on on this idea that somehow America owes us something or that, that our job in the world is to reclaim America? It's not. Our job is to bear witness to a risen Lord Jesus Christ who's over all the nations, who doesn't prioritize anyone over any other, biblically Israel. But that's the only one, and there's questions about how that even works out now. But the evangelical church in my lifetime has cozied up to political power too willingly when we ought to be much more wary. And the problem I have with this, and if you're sharing your faith, you understand this problem. I don't have to convince you of it. It has hurt our witness, irreparably hurt our witness. When I sit on a plane and engage somebody in a conversation about Jesus Christ, and they think that to become a Christian means they have to join the Republican Party, we have a problem. We have a deep problem. And we have allowed that problem to happen. We have pursued that problem, owned that problem, kissed that problem, married that problem, and it's time for a great divorce. Respect and honor those who govern us. Verse 7 uses these terms, and that's what we do. I have never, I, I, I don't refer to political leaders simply by their last name. It's always Mr. or Mrs., and I do that as a way of just keeping in my mind that I am to respect that person, I am to honor that person who holds that office. It's just a small thing that I do, but it keeps me from, from uh, It just keeps me from a lot of attitudes and, and dispositions, and, and listening to the outrage factory uh, that's out there, the 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 outrage industry. Uh, it, it just keeps me. T- In this posture, pay all to what is owed them. Jesus himself said that when he said, give Caesar what's Caesar's. I mean, the Lord made this really simple. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. (laughs) Give to Caesar what belongs to him and give God what belongs to him. It's a dual allegiance, but it's not parallel. We give to Caesar because of our allegiance to Jesus. That's the only reason why we have. All of this truth, it it affects the motivational structures of our hearts, and then it works out from there. Our takeaway from here is those who want to lift high the name of Jesus, and I hope you want to, is that the church neither undermines the state nor overindulges the state. It doesn't matter who's in office. I mean, we kind of have that sense that, well, if, if the person I like is in office, then I'll respect the position. And if it's not, I'll complain about it for four or eight years. it's, it's, It's hurting our witness. It's hurt our witness, and it continues to hurt our witness. And the world needs our witness. That's why I'm harping on this. It needs us to be straight on what our witness is. And it's not to save America. It's to see Americans come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and let him work on their political ideas and ideologies. Don't front load the gospel with that. A person just needs to come to Christ. A person needs to recognize that Jesus really walked out of his tomb. We need to talk about the resurrection with people. Not what they're into and not into. We need to talk about what is really there to, to, to hone in on. The church bears witness to the state through our submission to Jesus Christ, which includes a submission to the state to keep order and avenge wrongdoing in the world for now. Should the state be the wrongdoer? Should the state do us evil? We'll overcome that with good. Not with our belly aching. Not with who we listen to on the radio or television. We overcome that with doing good. It's it's here in front of us. It always has been. We, We overcome that with a deeper dive into the truth. Why do we do that? It's what Jesus did. We do as he did in the world. And he used even the state's authority, he used even the state's authority to kill him <laughs> for our good, to do good to us and for us. Even through that, he brought us into his kingdom and gave us a sure hope. His body given for us, his blood poured out for us. That was through the execution powers of the state. When we come to communion, and that's what we we, we hone in on in communion. The, all of this was, was done by the state. But guess who the state is? We the people. It was our sin that put him on his cross. And our sin he paid for to give, to give what no law can. The power of the state is limited and it's temporal. But the power of the Lord of all is eternal because it's the power of an indestructible life. And so we turn now to communion. We turn to communion, this act is our ultimate Pledge of Allegiance. Baptism, we stand before the church and say, I'm going to follow Jesus. But When we take communion, and in our church the cycle is every month, it's also a Pledge of Allegiance. It's saying, I proclaim His death until He comes, His death that covers me, His death that Provides the means for which God keeps me, His own. This is our ultimate pledge of allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And yet we're also confronted at the very same time that the strength of our pledge is weak. And so when we come to the communion table, we think of what Christ did for us on our behalf. Because even though I can put a good week together, I can put a good day together, I can't put a good life together. And I cannot be who he was in his flawless perfections. Only he could be. And because he could be, that's why scripture says the government shall be upon his shoulders. For now government is a temporary deal. But Isaiah talks about one coming upon whom the governments would be on his shoulders, meaning he's the only one fit to rule because he's the only one that's kept the only law that counts the law of God flawlessly. And Because he did that, and because he willingly sacrificed himself, his body broken, his blood poured out, because he did that, we have life. We have hope. We know what truth is. We don't have to get caught up in the controversies of the day or build our identity off of, of secondary associations or become more defined by what we're against and what we're for. Our definition of our lives is by Jesus, who he is, what he's done. And that's what happens when we take communion elements. We are saying the gospel applies to me. The Lord Jesus' death covers my sin and makes it so that the motivational structures of my heart are changing. And I want to serve him and I want to obey him. I want to trust him, whatever man does to me. So let, in that thought, in that spirit, let's take these communion elements now.